Mr. Chambers, there's only one thing I have to say to you. Immorality may be fun, but it isn't fun enough to take the place of 100% virtue and three square meals a day. This is How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's October 1918, and Peter Lubuza joins us today to discuss I Don't Want to Be a Man. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. We're here with Peter Labuza. Uh, Peter is a film historian and academic, but uh, as, you, as you mentioned in our pre-recording banter, uh, your uh, life has changed since... We last saw you on film formally. Uh, tell us about that. Hi. Uh, so, hi, everyone. I'm Peter Labuza. I am sort of a film scholar of media industries and a historian. I've written a lot on the history of Hollywood, finance, business, law. I'm currently working on a book about the history of deal making and lawyers in the industry from the 40s to the 70s. But uh, I've switched day jobs um, from teaching and academic. Uh, I am now a researcher at the International Cinematographers Guild. This is a union. Uh, We represent 10,000 camera crew members across the United States. We're affiliated with IATSE, the uh, International Alliance of Stage and Theatrical Employees, the largest union in Hollywood. It's really, really exciting work. I help uh, a lot of our business representatives and chief negotiators in learning a lot about um, the people uh, we're negotiating with across the table and learning more about our members. It's really, really fulfilling work and I find it rewarding. It's not as historically functioned as uh, my previous work, but I'm glad to be doing it and I'm glad to be sitting here with you. We're, of course, talking about Ernst Lubitsch's 1918 four-wheeler called, uh, I'm going to try the German title, Ich Mottekin Mann Sein, which translates to one of two ways. It is ambiguous in German. Uh, It was released as, in English, I don't want to be a man, But perhaps based on the context that line is used in the film, a more accurate translation is I wouldn't want to be a man, which to me is a very important distinction. Peter, uh, tell us, us being me and the audience, tell us about how did you get into Lubitsch, uh, which is probably a nice involved story given your history with film history. And what's your relationship to a cinema? What draws you, what made you say yes to coming on and talking about, not one of his most, but a fairly obscure early silent? Like any budding cinephile, I was getting into films from the 30s and 40s, a little slower, right? I think when you're young, you start with stuff that's more contemporary and then And you kind of uh, often I think many of us fall in love with the new Hollywood, the Scorsese's, the Spielberg's, the Coppola's. And even in my younger years, I wasn't particularly drawn to the classical Hollywood cinema. I enjoyed, you know, a Casablanca or a Citizen Kane here and there, but they weren't necessarily the ones that I was reaching out out toward initially as much as more sorry contemporary art cinema Kerostomy, Sai Ming Lang uh, those types of films when I graduated college and I was living in New York I was working a job at a law firm mostly a kind of combination paralegal secretary I was single and as a 22 year old with no responsibilities outside of my 9 to 5 I would go to like double triple features every night particularly at the film forum uh, which still exists down in the West Village they did a lot of 30s films there and I started to watch a lot 
lot of them and enjoy them and really get into, I think, a very different type of rhythm from someone who's coming from mostly contemporary cinema and really finding a lot of value in there. I really kind of credit people like Gina Teleroli, who I think really helped me see uh, a lot of the work that was being done. I think at first, though, I actually didn't. I, I'm trying to remember when I watched Ninotchka, which would have been the first one, the Garbo film. And I didn't like it. I thought it was slow was my reaction to it. Now I'm watching a lot of 1930s pre-code films, right? 70 minute features. And I'm just like, why is this film slow? Why is this film not have that kind of pull that I'm used to? And I wasn't avoiding Lubitsch films for any reason. It was just kind of whatever was playing. I think then the next one I saw was maybe a few years later, and it was Trouble in Paradise, uh, his 1932 pre-code film that I think is just one of the best films ever made. That reset my entire understanding of Lubitsch. I kind of started to see, oh, see what I'm thinking as slow I'm actually understanding now as rhythm, right? That it's not necessarily that 1930s Warner Brothers style of stuff everything in as quick as possible so mm -hmm. we can get the audience into the next feature. It's no, let's let the rhythm sit. Let's let the dialogue sit. Let's let the emotions and the characters mm -hmm. and really give a chance for, I think what struck me, and I think we'll talk about a lot, literally give space for the actors to breathe in the roles and sort of give these character psychology that I think is so important in so many of his films. Then came, I eventually started to watch many of the classics, uh, To Be or Not To Be, The Shop Around the Corner, One Hour With You, which is really interesting, The Merry Widow, The Smiling Lieutenant. That's one that really, really struck me um, because I think that was the first musical I saw with Marie Chavier and that, uh, that whole sequence between Claudette Colbert and Miriam Hopkins where... Colbert teaches Hopkins basically how to blow her husband is like one of the best sequences in film history and really, really loved his work. And then I Don't Want to Be a Man, I should say, was actually then the first silent film I saw. This was, um, I go every year to the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, which if there's a film festival that's worth going to, the San Francisco Silent Film Festival is absolutely the peak. Every film is in the Castro. It seats 2,000 people. Musical accompaniment for every film. It's four to five days long and you get um, new restorations, uh, films pulled out of the archives, classics. Uh, every year, I'm just so satisfied. And they did this one, I want to say, in around 2017. Laura Horak, who's a professor of film and media and film history, a trans scholar, presented it along a couple other um, short films, I believe. And it really just struck me that so many of the things that I liked about Lubitsch were present even when he wasn't using sound, which I felt was so essential to his cinema. And since then, I've seen The Doll, I've seen The Marriage Circle, Lady Windermere's Fans, so This is Paris, which is really great, and a few of the other German silent films. And I think to answer your second question, I think what drew me to Lubitsch is kind of the same thing that draws me to my two other key filmmakers of the classical Hollywood era, being John Ford and Howard Hawks, is that these are not the showiest filmmakers when we necessarily think of cinematography, but they're the ones that understand cinema of this type to be a rhythmic device more than anything else in a space for 
acting to breathe. And when we think about like, well, what was the classical Hollywood cinema trying to do? I always think about it. Well, people showed up to see good action, good kissing, funny lines or witty dialogue and actors being stars. And I think this is actually one of the things that Lubitsch absolutely understood about the medium he was working in, um, particularly when he was the producer at Paramount in the 1930s, is that he understood that that's what he needed to get across. Now, it was all about narrative economy and finding ways to sort of repeat things and gesture to the audience and some of the thematic ideas that he deals with are really, really interesting. But I think he just really understood what the system needed and how to show it off to the audience in the best way possible. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but that's kind of what has always drawn me to him. I'm always amazed at his uh, exceptional ability to work within the trends and restrictions of any given mm -hmm. era. For example, we're going to get soon to his epic era, right? The, uh, the era where he was you know, the most famous director in Berlin, and uh, was basically given these incredible budgets, just unprecedented for Germany budgets to make The Loves of the Pharaoh, The Eyes of Mummy Ma, uh, Anne Boleyn. And that was mostly because Paul Davidson pushed him to do that. And so what happens when, when he moves to America? He makes a silence that really express his own take on that culture. And what happens when sound comes in? He takes full advantage of it in every different way, you know, pioneers, musicals, dialogue and films. And what happens when, you know, the, the motion picture production code takes over? He fully, he actually takes a few years off basically, but then fully retools his style to work within that. And I'm always just stunned at how readily he adapts. Yeah. I think when you talk about him sort of adapting, you know, it's so much kind of speaks to the fact that I think a lot of Lubitsch films feel so modern, right? I think a lot of different writers have kind of responded over the years to um, recent film critics. I'm thinking about going back to the Lubitsch films and feeling like, wow, these films could have just been made today or feel like they wouldn't even be made today under, say, not necessarily uh, the production code that doesn't exist, but like, you know, the sort of social norms of like what is considered risque in a film today. I think Lubitsch films almost jump our culture in a lot of ways. And I think that's kind of what he was always kind of chasing the modern in terms of what relationships could look like, what, you know, the city could be, what was considered humor that uh, an audience would find interesting or find exciting to watch. And I think that type of chase really always made him really, really interesting, right? I think and that kind of separates him out from uh, when I talk about like Ford or Hawks who are kind of always kind of, you know, we think about them for their traditional masculinity. I don't think there's a character in a single Lubitsch film where I'm like, well, that's traditional masculinity at all. Or if they are, they're a complete buffoon of a character. And I think that kind of, separates him out into this one of these pillars that you can see so many other filmmakers kind of coming out of whether it's you know someone who literally directly worked with him like a billy wilder but then all the way to someone like an albert brooks or i'm you know even like a nancy myers today right these people who are all kind of borrowing on certain ideas of what a film should look like it should be pretty it should be gorgeous the actors should be glowing and i think that type of thing that almost feels like oh well it's just crass commercialism lubitsch when you watch his films it doesn't 
feel like you're just being sold a product. You're being sold almost on like, I don't know, an aspirational life, but not one that you're going to go out and consume, just sort of a way or a mind of thinking more than anything else. It's what a lot of scholars are called Lubitsch land, right? It's it's this place that exists only in the mind that he inhabits. And this gets at something I wanted to really nail on this episode is the kind of apolitical nature of his films uh, weirdly allows him to back into these very radical social points. So, you know, this film here, uh, I Don't Want to Be a Man, filmed during the spring offensive in World War One, like is filmed in the depths of Germany's ongoing defeat at that point and released a month before, you know, the, the November Revolution. And yet you watch the film. And when I first watched it, I just fully assumed it was a post-1919 Weimar era film, right? And it's not. It's it's so disconnected from the actual political situation at the time. And yet it is very political in a different way and radical in a way that feels disconnected from the issues governing what you would expect a film about average citizens in Germany to uh, to be experiencing in that time. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's an always interesting question that I have, I, particularly when I was teaching film history and working with students, right, about thinking about this issue of like, well, how do we think about films being released during these cataclysmic times. And I feel like if anything, like living through the last couple of years, right? Like, you know, we get a film like Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy or something that has like, you know, that's dealing with the COVID pandemic, but so many films that are being released or, you know, television shows just have absolutely nothing to do with our current times. I think maybe a little more like people always try and shoehorn, um, certain political messages in uh, for better, for worse. But I think when you actually consider the times, like, you know, movies do really still feel this escape in a lot of ways. I remember I was talking actually with the person who does the Silent Film Mm -hmm. Fest recap podcast that I still do in the Cinephiliacs with me, Victor Morton. And he threw out this question to me. He's like, have you seen a film from 1918 to 1920 where people are wearing masks in that the influenza pandemic was going on and would have been pretty common as (laughs) history research has shown that people should be wearing masks. And it was like, no, absolutely. I've seen photos of people inside a movie theater um, in the French front line wearing masks at a sort of makeshift theater, but never in the movies themselves has there ever been a sequence where someone is wearing a mask uh, unless it was in a hospital. And I thought that was really, really surprising in a way. And so I think, you know, there's a sense that still on the home front, there's this space for escapist films for things where people just need to go out in a way that we can always think about the 40s cinema of world war ii and hollywood at the time so many films are just entirely escapist and the only idea that you would know that there's a war going on is either is the little conclusion at the end of the title card that says buy war bonds right it's just like hey here's a reminder you should uh, buy these uh war bonds and you know mm. i think there's a certain nationalism that I think we can kind of trace through some of these films and even a film like this. So, right, I think one of the biggest divides that I think a lot of um, cultural historians have put on, and we can still kind of trace to issues today, right, is a sort of cosmopolitanism, which I think this film certainly represents in its depiction of um, a growing Weimar Germany versus these more rural stories that are more associated with nationalism. And I think that's maybe the interesting divide that you might be starting to, uh, see 
grown out here. And I don't, I didn't, was not able to pull up any um, contemporary reviews of the film, though I've, you know, certainly read a lot of debates, particularly uh, I've had students read debates in newspapers about the rise of what would have been called the new woman, right? These types of characters who are going out at night because they have to work day jobs because their husbands died during the war. And then they're going out to nightlife because why shouldn't they be stuck in the rise huh. of avant-garde, uh, you know, whether it's the Bauhaus movement or other fields of culture all come together. But these new women being kind of at the absolute center of the debate of what what represents German culture the best. I mean, you can see this film as like number one in the culture wars of the time, possibly, though I, I have no contemporary reviews to sort of suggest whether it was debated or not, or if it was just kind of seen in Berlin and Frankfurt and then kind of uh, avoided in the sticks, so to say. Yeah, finding actual contemporaneous accounts at the time is, as a non-German speaker is, is an interesting struggle. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to apologize every time we do a synopsis. I hate synopsis in podcasts, but I feel like for these yeah, it, for these I obscure know. German films, uh, maybe they're a necessary evil. I'll, put, I'll just put a, like, a disclaimer here. There's nothing worse than a podcast that's like, we're going to go through the film narrative, like through the narrative chronology of the film. I'm like, I don't want to record this for two hours going through each plot point. I, I'm going to take my cue from uh, This Had Oscar Buzz, which has a great way of doing this, where they make it into a game to try and do it as fast as possible. <laughs> so in this four-reeler, it's a twisted coming-of-age story of Aussie, played by Aussie Oswalda, who seems to play characters with the same name as herself frequently. A gre- <laughs> She's a gregarious young woman who insists on smoking, playing cards, and drinking granting her sorrows in comically small amounts of booze. Her uncle leaves town and her governess assigns her a new guardian. So she does what anyone in late Great War era Berlin would do and dresses up as a man to emancipate herself from society's gender-based expectations. She goes to a party where she, of course, runs into and befriends and, passing as a man, makes out with her guardian. Uh, hijinks ensue. Thanks, everyone. It's a very simple film, but I also I want to hi- highlight a few developments. This is as far as Lubitsch's surviving films. And I want to asterisk this by saying that since the last episode, my dear listeners, we've had at least three films that Lubitsch has directed and are either lost or unavailable. Um, in the case of the Rosentop case, unavailable since the Mary Jail. So in this case, we might be ascribing developments here to this film, mostly because other films that may have had those developments in the interceding time since the last film are lost or unavailable. But yes, Peter, you have uh, seen the Rosentop case? I've seen the 20 minutes that survive. This was, I was at Il Cinema Ritrovata in uh, 2018. This is the festival in Bologna that's absolutely incredible. And what they do is they, every year they do a uh, hundred years. So they kind of get all the archives to be like, find something from 100 Mm -hmm. years ago and premiere a new restoration of it. So a lot of like small shorts or whatever, or like a Swedish archive found a color tinted version of the Charlie Chaplin World War One film, I forget. But the one of the German archives did show the Rosentop case, uh, 20 minutes it exists. You know, this from 2018, my memory's a little flaky, but um, it seemed that Lubitsch basically played what if Sherlock Holmes was horny? That was (laughs) basically the premise of the film he starred in it it was the first time i had experienced him as an actor on screen and it's very interesting right he was a little bit of a blend between let's say an eric von stroheim character right the man you love to hate type characters but with a little more charm and i think uh, a little more i should say um i guess you know stroheim's considered attractive too but more in a comedic role 
role, then I think, you know, the Von Stroheims always fall into great tragedy, uh, so to say. His camera seemed mostly in, you know, the traditional style of the 1910s. It was, you know, kind of always in the right place, very theatrical. I'm totally forgetting the Boardwalk comment uh, term for this. I'm going to forget about this. The mise-en-scene kind of just more, um, you know, naturally placed in anything artificial. It was set on the streets of um, whatever city it was, whether it was Berlin or somewhere else. Yeah, it was quite delightful in what, you know, you could, you could only pick up on certain plot points. He was trying to solve a mystery, but he kept running into attractive women. So he then spends more time trying to seduce those women and then no idea where the mystery went from there. But um, I really hope the the archive that has it makes it available at some point because it is quite interesting and cool to look at. And I think, you know, for those who haven't seen Lubitsch actually perform in one of his films it's very revealing to see him how he interprets the types of characters that are often in his films as far as what's developed in this film um, one thing that got stuck out at me just pacing wise was how much tighter and more disciplined i don't want to be a man is compared to especially the previous film in the series the mary jail where that film was very diffuse you had multiple plot lines and even the editing between those plot lines it had that classic kind of I call it an early 1910s, mid 1910s editing rhythm where it feels like what we as audiences in now 2022 expect from a beat, right? You know, the economy of beats. You, you, you only hold on a shot long enough for the audience to get the point. You move on. That was still very much a work in progress as far as Lubitsch was concerned as of the Mary Jail. And in this film, it's suddenly like, wow, it's this film here is faster and more frantic, actually. And yet the discipline here is it's comparatively through the roof. Shots hold just long enough for us to get the point. In the Mary Jail, Lubitsch was very much someone who bristled against the overbearing nature of title cards. He wanted mm-hmm. to limit the number of them in his films. In in this film, it's his faculties with actually getting across the beats he wants to in moments Uh, Like, what does this facial expression mean? What does this blocking mean? The development is remarkable in just the one year between when these films were produced. Aside from that, I also want to point out the the fact that this is, I think, the first of these films, we're at number four now, to have what I would call a very distinct hook. (laughs) You can summarize what's interesting about this film's plot in... 10 seconds <laughs> versus the Mary jail, which is based off an, an operetta that is quite difficult <laughs> to summarize. Um, and then the, the first two films were rather skeletal <laughs> in terms of their, their actual plot structure. So, um, and, and, and this all comes together to make this, I think the first film in this retrospective that I just fully enjoyed. <laughs> I, I've seen it, I think four times now. And every single time I just am completely invested in the characters Lubitsch feels fully formed here as the type of filmmaker you'd need to be to make this exact movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's one of the big surprises when I first saw this as my first silent film. Oh, no, I think I had seen Lady Windermere's fan to see this film be like, nope, this is a Lubitsch film through and through. The performers are doing the things that I expect them to do. The space it's taking place in feels very put together. And I think your point about the the compactness, right? Like this is a 45 minute feature. Um, it just runs by so quickly. Each, there's not a unnecessary beat in it. And it really feels like everything's kind of been given its space 
in how it's put together and how it's constructed. And um, you're right. It, it just kind of, you know, it, it, there's an era in which you can just, you know, make like four or five films a year as you might need to. And it just feels like it's kind of something where the plot was put together in two days, right? It's like, okay, what do we need? Here's the sets. And then they kind of like, all right, let's put together, <laughs> you know, maybe a few weeks of shooting and a few weeks of editing and you have it put together, but not in like a hastily rushed way, but in a way that really feels like it's all part of uh, a piece together. And I think that's um, what's always surprising. And I think, you know, starting this relationship that I guess Lubitsch had started previously with Ossie Oswald on a, on a film that um, doesn't exist, but someone who so feels like one of these muses for Lubitsch, like a Polonegri, that mm-hmm. like will just so define how we think of their cinema this time is like how does this performer operate in this world and you know it feels like um the the Asias Walter character does actually remind me quite a bit of Lubitsch's own acting performances just in of course another gender or I should say in another sex but um I guess the gender we can say is actually quite uh similar in a way. Asias Walter's performance here uh like it's a true movie star performance she plays the rafters uh with possibly a bit more dynamic range than Lubitsch did. Um, She's never subtle, but she's magnetic and the expressiveness through which she kind of gets at that classic kind of Lubitsch darkness underneath uh, her beats uh, is is, is all there. Throughout, she's this basically impish prankster. She wants to live out her ability to self-actualize in the sense of kind of causing chaos and pulling the rug out from under people. With her, there's a sense of a genuine frustration and hurt at uh, the restrictions that society places upon her as a woman. I think you notice it immediately when at the beginning of the film, when the suitor, who's going to be her new guardian, comes by. And I think this is always one of those things that I think is really, really well situated for this type of film style where the camera's not going to do much movement, where there's no continuity editing yet, where we see the person enter and the way that Asias Walda sort of turns to the camera gives us that sign of elation, right? Where she is suddenly has the, you know, basically she's very, very excited about these prospects and she's very uh, sexually curious about this uh, new suitor. Turns to the camera and then turns back to him, right? It almost feels like uh, one of those uh, Shakespearean asides in a way, right? The fact that the camera is staged in one place so you can have action happening behind or slightly off screen have an actor turn to the camera, give us a gesture or a glance, and then turn back as if nothing's happened. And it all happens if you look at this. This is, I'm talking about two, like one and a half seconds of action in this film. It's not like a big close up that Griffith might do that really kind of pushes it. It's really just kind of very quickly give us something so we know what the action that will follow will be. And I'm kind of surprised at how quickly Lubitsch does it as compared to the slowness that like a Griffith might do. Yeah. And then the density of those, um, of those frames is really remarkable here. I want to point out that there's a, just an offhanded scene where uh, Aussie's uncle uh, hops on a carriage to leave town. I want to get to the boat later, but yeah. it's all played in a single master shot, uh, kind of a medium wide on the Z axis, right? Characters approach the camera and the actors are so well blocked so that at any, any given point, we're looking 
at uh, whichever character's facial expression is relevant for us as the audience is pointed towards the camera, but they're not staged in a way that is overtly for the camera. Mm -hmm. So you have this wonderful little just you know, 20, 30 second beat where she says goodbye to her uncle and her like excitement at this is clear. Simple beat, but if we compare that to a similar scene in The Merry Jail where two characters attempt and fail to board a taxi carriage, that's played in two fairly awkwardly cut together reverses. You can see, oh, this shot was staged for this moment. This shot was staged for this moment. And because neither of which really fits each mm -hmm. other, they have to cut back and forth to two mismatched shots. In this case, it's nope. It's elegant. There's play in depth. And it's all done in one little master. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, like uh, the obviously other director of sort of this staging, this tableau style, as uh, David Bordwell has often written about, you know, I think we mostly associate with a uh, few yacht working in Paris and working in these urban spaces. And I think Lubitsch does less with depth, per se. He's not anti-depth. He's not making the staging flat. There's a lot of sort of movement in it. But I think actually one of the things that he really likes for the most part is just kind of setting up his actors in this on the straight line access and letting them do the work of creating the dynamic staging with how they move their bodies or how they move their gestures than necessarily how the actors are going to move to this space on the screen. I think, that, of course, you notice this mostly, particularly near the end of the film between uh, Aussie and the, the suitor, and we'll get to that later. But I think a lot of the times I was kind of struck by how often it's really about kind of just like putting an actor in like kind of a line and allowing this i'm just I'm, I'm just looking right now at the um the tailoring scene that is one of these great scenes where aussie goes to a um a tailor to find get a, a you know a man's evening suit um there are five or six different tailors there they all want to measure her body of course and then it's sort of they fight and then they each choose a body part and there's this just great sequence where she lines up the center and then each tailor comes to a part of her body and holds it elegantly and you know kind of plays with it as they take their measurements i think that's one of the things that you kind of strike about what lubitsch is doing here where he's giving the actors more of the space than i think a few yard who's doing more movement of actors within space he loves and this is something that's going to be, become incredibly evident in the next few films especially the oyster princess um he loves to reduce groups of people to monolithic kind of repetitive entities and you, you see that with the tailors you also see that mirrored when aussie is passing as a man you know the women uh, all of whom are relatively interchangeable uh, grab her and and can lead her onto the dance floor and um, you see that with the with the service staff even entering there's this lovely shot at the beginning of the party scene you have this yeah lovely rhythm created by each of these servants holding a wine bottle in a cooler they go one by one and 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 so you already see him playing in a i think a fairly gestational way uh, with this idea of groups of people as these almost like monolithic ideas, this almost not dehumanizing way of, of doing it, but it's a comedically reductive gesture. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I think that really kind of defines right where you're looking for. We're talking about 
filmic visual rhythm here as opposed to audio rhythm, right? This is, I think, what Mm -hmm. so much defines Lubitsch in the 30s and the 40s is like we think of the sound rhythms. And I think about some of the work that scholarship that Leah Jacobs, a film historian emeritus at Madison, uh, UW-Madison has done that's really kind of looked at like the development of sound rhythm, right? About sort of solving the sound solutions as a film like uh, Love Me Tonight, which is the Robert uh, Ruben Mamoulian film, which is basically a a Lubitsch film that he didn't direct. Um, But also she writes about Trouble in Paradise, really kind of using dialogue. Um, But here, I think, right, it is you're looking for these gestural moments of physical characters, of groups, of kind of using them to find spaces of rhythm together. Um, so whether it's, you know, as you mentioned, right, the boat scene where this uh, they're trying to show that the uncle of Ossie Eswalda is having a very bad time on a very rocky boat and it's just going up and down to I think that um, how that Taylor sequence begins where um, this is one of the few depth staging in the films where Ossie's in the bottom left corner of the screen toward the front and all the tailors are kind of positioned back and forth and there seems to be like a running back and forth motion that's being created um that kind of really sets together how we think about how these characters are moving through what they're doing and i think of course then you see it through the whole night hall sequence with the characters dancing and sometimes that has to do with the chaos of the sequence like when uh aussie is trying to drop off her hat and coat at the 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 check girl booth right to sort of you know like get a ticket and get your um, coat later um and right you've got pandemonium going on and it's very interesting that lubitsch is able to never shoot for that close-up of aussie but just use her she's kind of center frame but not center frame but she's just so characteristically stands out within the frame to make it work in how we see her being thrown around by these stronger, more um, bullish, uh, boisterous men who just want to drop off their coats so they can go hang with the ladies in the night. Yeah, and and that party scene has maybe my single favorite staging in depths moments where uh, you have uh, Aussie and her guardian on opposite sides of the of the uh, dance hall, um, you know, yelling at one another. And so you get these wonderful shots where you have uh, one set of characters in the foreground framing the dance floor, which is then framing the character in the background. So you have this wonderful set of reverse shots that take advantage of that, which, so you get, you get the, again, you get this density, right? That I just haven't seen any of these films up to this point where you get one, a sense of the place, a sense of the milieu they're in. Well, at the same time, you have this comical drama playing out along the z-axis which is my favorite axis i think you also see it in that first shot when she first approaches um the guardian um this is around like 26 minutes in um where there's so much party going on behind in the shot and i think this has to deal a lot with um how he sets a different depth of focus where they are all in focus in the back but just slightly out to not stand out in the frame so when the two characters are in the front of the screen and she's trying to get his attention get him to light a cigarette and he's obviously not paying attention because he's looking for the woman who he wants to spend the night with i'm just surprised at how busy all the actors in the background are doing and yet none of it takes away 
from the front action. It almost feels like they are like rear screen projected on to the frame in a way that keeps our attention where it needs to be, but gives us a sense of the party life of the sequence. It's really kind of an amazing shot. Yeah, there's there's very little connecting the foreground and the background there. So it almost feels like it could be them in front of a rear projection, even though it's clearly not. Clearly, I mean, I think it's at this point, it's obvious that Lubitsch is taking a lot of cues from Max Reinhardt's renowned way of directing crowds, which again, I've never seen a Max Reinhardt play because I'm not 120 years old. But uh, so I can only rely on on uh, on writings on this but we, we should we should tackle what goes on at that party and the actual dynamics here uh, we have to tackle the gender and queer aspect of this film because it is maybe the single most fascinating thing about it and i think it's what attracted i mean again i first saw this presented by laura horak who her book on cross-dressing in early silent film girls will be boys is really good and i think really kind of speaks to how to think about a lot of the ways. I don't think she writes on this film particularly in her book, though it's been a while since I've read it. But I think she makes a case for looking and understanding, you know, this era of, I would say, pre-1930s culture as a space where this sort of cross-dressing was much more prominent and much more actually popular, not just in European silent films, but in American silent films up to about 1915, 1916. And then it kind of disappeared, though there's a famous Mary Pickford film in the 20s where she cross-dresses as well. I think it was just more of a plot device at the time than necessarily something. But, you know, one thing that I I do want to point out, and I this has always stuck with me, um, the great film critic Willow McClay, who's a friend, she is a trans scholar, and I think she said something that was really, really helpful when why do certain trans critics claim films that seemingly have no representative trans characters on screen? Why do they claim these other films? It's because there's so few examples worth discussing and because actually the dynamics and understandings of how we might see and think about these characters is way more interesting than necessarily just um, let's say uh, a Dallas Buyers Club so say right this is a much more interesting film to think about trans characters and representation than you know watching Jared Leto try and do whatever he's doing in his movies Um, and I think it kind of speaks to the excitement I think I think most people both in 1919 and now in 2022 would have about watching this film as kind of watching that risque behavior of uh, queerness uh, on screen in such lovingly shot photography. Yeah. And, and it's the specifics of the mechanics of the plot in this film that really, uh, that really stick out to me. And, and so you have this split between the subtext and the, and the text of the film that I, that I think is a good way to look at the th- this through. The text of this film is on the surface, right? Aussie ad- identifies as a woman personally throughout the whole film, even when she's passing as a man. Uh, the text is her going, oh, there's so many expectations of me as a woman. Uh, I want to rebel by pretending to be a man to basically, in, in the film's words, emancipate herself. It's the English translation, but uh, there's an interesting double meaning there where you have the emancipation to be free from laws and to be free from parents. And in doing so, uh, she finds out, oh, it's not so easy being a man. Look at all these expectations that men have. I got to tie my bow tie. I have to be tough, that sort of thing. And that, just reading the film, seems like the most kind of obvious, bold text thematically mm-hmm. of the film. And then I think it's also, not coincidentally, the least interesting reading of it. Of right. Oh, it's tough being a man. Even though I think there is, if we want to look at it through a really revisionist modern lens, there's a lot in there about the way that toxic masculinity also impacts the behavior of men or the 
expectations upon men and restricts them. But I think much more interesting is the way that her cross-dressing is treated with this complete lack of what you might call queer panic. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's never judged in a way you would expect any film for the next like 90 years, basically to judge such an act. And so what happens is she ends up uh, meeting her guardian and her guardian, for all he knows, he's talking to a man, a bro who is trying to also pick up the lady that the guardian is hitting on. So it's just two guys hanging out, bonding, and they start making out. Yeah, no, I think that's crazy, right? It, it's not a plot point. It's not brought up as like, I, I've never done this before. It's just they just kind of start falling into it because they're very very drunk and all the women have disdained them and it's like well this person understands me so you know i think part of it is what lubich does with these performers i think one of the most exciting things in this film is watching him direct actors to be drunk in a way that feels Authentic is not the right word, but it, because he kind of sets these rhythms in that drinking scene where it's the two of them, they're pouring champagne, uh, the way that they move in the frame, right? It's just a very flat frame. We've got, um, you know, a railing in the front, some curtains in the background, uh, some flowers in the front on the table, and they're just moving from left to right. But I think there's something about the way he builds their actions on top of each other as they try and do the thing where you like cross your elbows together to drink a glass of champagne. And so once they start kissing and after they've had cigars, it just feels like this is like, of course, this is the natural culmination of their actions. And I think that's what kind of adds to it, right? Is that he's done all that sort of preparatory work in terms of what we're viewing and how we're acting, watching their behaviors, that of course, this is the natural combination of what should happen and we shouldn't be worried at all. And think of this, if this was some comedy from the 90s, yeah. right? uh, you'd have this moment of disgust, right? Yeah. From, the, from the, the man in this case, uh, that, oh my God, I've kissed a man. Am, am I questioning my sexuality? There's none of that there. And I think that's, that's where this movie pays off wonderfully, where when he discovers that it's actually Aussie the whole time, he's not, thank God, a woman. It's, no, it's, you were that cool guy I kissed? Great. And the film, it basically blurs the line and problematizes that traditionally accepted line between platonic you know in this case uh same-sex friendships and heterosexual romantic relationships in mm -hmm. a way that kind of throws that idea of gender-based romance kind of out the window in a way that i mean i found it just exhilarating yeah and i think that's so key in a lot of lubitsch films you know before i brought up the smiling lieutenant right this um film where um basically it's um like an austrian period piece musical comedy and marie chavier is stuck with miriam hopkins who's kind of a pissy naggy wife um and he's really in love with claudette colbert but near the end of the film claudette colbert basically has this long sequence where he, she basically teaches this is how you love a man right. you know put together in a way that's uh, not gonna really uh offend any senses and then she exits the film and right that's something that's very modern where like it's ultimately going to reestablish traditional hierarchy marie chavier is going to stay with his wife and rule this kingdom and you know claudette colbert kind of exits the film very similar to um midge and vertigo there's a really nice sort of um illusion there that i always thought was quite interesting but right it, it brings us back to traditional 
gender roles by exposing this opusness that like, oh, these women are going to talk about how they've had sex with the same man and talk about the best ways that he enjoys having sex with them. Right. That's something that uh, you couldn't imagine in a 90s comedy at all either in some way right it would be like you're a scorned lover you would never do that defend your honor and again i think lubich in the way that he's often setting up characters in the way he's setting up boundaries uh often is exposing this you know just to go all the way back to the first couple of sequences of the film right um her guardian this older matriarch like character at the beginning uh turns her for smoking a cigar or it's a cigarette and you know how dare you do that give me that and then she takes a puff and then she takes another puff and she takes another puff and then you start to see the smile on her face as she takes a fourth and a fifth puff. And then we see that with her uncle, right? It's like, stop drinking this liquor. That's not for you. And then he pours himself a small glass and then he pulls out a large glass and starts pouring into that, right? These sort of behaviors that like, right, of course we know that they're not allowed, that they're not supposed to be done. And yet, like, here we are. Everyone wants to enjoy a little risque humor. And so I think by the time that it's, you know, two quote unquote men kissing with each other, it's like, Oh, but this is risque. And yet, of course, we know in the back of our heads, of course, it's a man and a woman. Of course, it's traditional gender. There's nothing here to be, quote unquote, worried about. And yet Lubitsch is always on that line, right? This is why we love it. He's always on that line between the dangerous and the traditional. The sexual orientation of the Guardian, his is left entirely ambiguous. I think, I mean, I think the film probably lends itself most readily to the reading that he is probably bisexual. I can't imagine that in any of uh, Lubitsch's uh, Hollywood films. The most extreme of contrasts is let's look at The Love Parade, right? Which is um, a film that, uh, you know, it has uh, Janet McDonald plays a monarch of some sort and Maurice Chavier plays uh, an army captain and obviously they they start you know the scientific word is boning but then you know they get married and the entire whole last 45 minutes of that film the arc is oh this is unbalanced because the woman is wearing the pants in the relationship she is in charge and Maurice is becoming emasculated so the film ends with her basically abdicating and giving (laughs) giving the reins of power to Maurice so this gets at something about Ernst that I and I think authorship in especially the studio era that I find fascinating, depending on which films you want to cherry pick, um, Ertz Lubitsch can either be the single most radical, libertine, LGBT friendly filmmaker, or he can be this patriarch who's reinforcing gender roles, depending on which films we choose. So that's something that I, I want to kind of tease out throughout the rest of the series is um, how we read that and what it says, not just about the auteur theory and how Lubitsch in particular chooses to curate the projects he works on. I worked with my students or worked with my students in taught film history. There's so many films that I think surprise us in this period where um, when you watch the canon, so to say, they all feel so traditional and so kind of built into a very like rigorous, like, oh, these are 30s values. And then you start to dig around the sides and you find these films. It's like, this has got some radical politics and like, I don't know what to do with it. Um, This is, I don't (laughs) want to take us off too much of a tangent, but there's like a William Wellman film I really, really love called Robin Hood of El Dorado. Obviously, it's very outdated in 
I forget which actor plays, but someone's playing um, this traditional um, Mexican revolutionary hero in um, a type of yellow brown face, which obviously is very wrong. But the film is all about how this man is part of California. And when uh, whites settled into the area, they basically steal the land. They use laws to sort of rip it off. And then they do all these murders and killings. And so ultimately, the character turns into this sort of revolutionary hero who's fighting back against the Californians. And so the film's politics are very much like this was California is stolen land from these traditional indigenous Mexican tribes in the area that, you know, with obviously with the Spanish colonial era coming before that. Right. Like, how do we read this film? Right. Like, this is a film that's basically as leftist as it can get at the era. And I think, you know, the thing is, the Hollywood system is so big in some ways and there were so many films there was just this recent post from um the castro theater in san francisco where i used to live is under attack and it's one of the great last great movie palaces in the united states and someone just posted the calendar from 1940 and you had 15 films premiere 15 to 20 films i want to say premiering in one month right things are going to slip through. Not everything's going to be caught by the censors and Joseph Breen's hands. And at some point it's like, well, you know, you pay someone off and something gets through and it, you know, kind of fills. And I think, right. I think all, not just Lubitsch, but I think actually Lubitsch particularly because he was a producer at Paramount and working closely with the Selznicks and the Thalbergs and, you know, all the sort of moguls of the era. I think he understood that element that like there's things you can sneak through and then there's ways that you kind of have to assure an audience that they're, you know, assure a white Protestant audience that they're watching something that's okay for the kids. And I think Lubitsch is, you know, the, the best to ever do it in that way. You know, it's, uh, you can basically go through any of the great, Oh, capital, you know, C canonical filmmakers. And there's always, there's always yeah. so many contradictions in that era, especially. Um, I think now we're so used to filmmakers with the means to do so mm-hmm. heavily curate their projects. And to go back to like Soderbergh, Soderbergh's not going to do like a, a right wing apology anytime soon. One of my favorite examples is Ford, right? I mean, watch Ford Apache. And that film is Oh my God, that is such a radically progressive film for 1950 was the year it came out? 48. 48, yeah. It's such a radically progressive film. And then then immediately you have Rio Grande, yeah. which is as regressive as he got. This why it's not my favorite Ford film, but it's like the one I think about the most is the long gray line because either it's the greatest anti-military film ever made or the greatest pro-military film. And you have no idea which it is. And no one will it's somehow know. both. It is both. If we if just to circle back, just watching how the actors play the rhythms here when they're when they're in the the coach, right? And it's just moving along. And they're very, very drunk and they're kissing. And I like the, I love the, the carriage, uh, I don't know, the taxi driver, the carriage driver, who's just like totally just not blinking an eye at any of this behavior because he lives in Berlin in 1919 and he's seen it all. But I just love the way that how they continue to make out. And it just feels like, yeah, they're just going to keep doing that because this is all they do. And this is our lives. And um, there's nothing to really worry about. And again, it's just kind of the way that he he really just gives those actors that space and that rhythm to get to that end point that you're looking for that I think surprises us, right? I think that's what it is. If it was 
this film's 45 minutes is very economical, but if it was, you could imagine the 20, 25 minute version of this film, right? It could have been even shorter. Mm -hmm. It could have been a two reeler. And then it would just feel forced. And yet he gives us so much character and life in the nightclub scene. Uh, these small moments with her uncle, with the, the matriarch garden guardian figure, um, even in the night after when Ossie Oswaldo wakes up in his house instead of her house and is dealing with his butler, like, you know, all this moments that I think grows the world around these two characters in a lot of ways and kind of gives us a sense of kind of the way that everyone just kind of plays it in like i think you mentioned the lubitsch land element right it really feels like we're in an alternate reality in some ways and that kind of allows for space to grow and that's an interesting element here too is the way that the fact that lubitsch's films all take place in this imagined europe is often i think associated in the writings i see um and the way people talk about it with the fact that you know all, most of his most famous films were made in hollywood so it's this you know he called it paris paramount right that he preferred to paris france and yet that is still, even when he's making films in Europe, that is 100% in effect here. He was of Russian Jewish heritage in a family that had been kind of fully culturally assimilated. Uh, it feels to me that there's this kind of cosmopolitan connected Europe that Lubitsch is always imagining that I can't help but connect to his past in that way. I mean, there's so many ways that the, you know, obviously the character of Hollywood ultimately, right? Like the great success, one of the great immigrant stories of the United States, right, is all these Eastern Europeans coming over, fleeing out of Austria, Russia, Germany, France, right? And building the greatest culture industry that the that defined the 20th century in Hollywood, right? When we're talking about the Warner Brothers or Louis mm -hmm. B. Mayer or any of these people who really built this completely new industry out of nowhere and turned the city that I live in, Los Angeles, like people associate with the movie industry still to say, even though it's a tiny portion of the industry um part of my research i was doing i was looking into the old guard of los angeles before the immigrants got here and it was a bunch of steel industry magnets and they were so pissed in the 20s that los angeles was no longer the steel uh capital of the world <laughs> and that this other city back east pittsburgh was becoming the capital of the world and i think but that you know so when we talk about how did Lubitsch managed to transition so well from this, you know, cosmopolitan style in Europe into Los Angeles. We forget what's well, like because the people who are running it are basically people he grew up with and knew in Germany already. And it's so much part of the world. And really, I think the biggest difference we can talk about, and, you know, I'm sure you'll get this into uh, further episodes, right, is that sort of artisan model that we think of that defines the studios in Germany where the director is more of the producer and gets more power and that divide that then happens in the Hollywood studio system really starting in the 20s where the producer and director are really separate roles that have different functions and that where control is uh, much more um, separated out toward the producer's hand than the director's hand. One of my favorite things about watching you know, films, basically watching old films, especially old films shot on location, is um, occasionally being just bewildered by locations I recognize. And 
Mm. A lot of the exteriors in this movie are shot in and around Townsendstrasse, which is a very famous shopping street in West Berlin, or at least mm. what we now call West Berlin. I was blown away because there's two or three shots where I had realized that I had accidentally wandered into the set of Nernst Lubitsch film uh, earlier this year when I visited. So, um, <laughs> for example, you can see the uh, cathedral that was bombed in World War II in the back of one shot that I distinctly remember. And I think m most interestingly, probably, is uh, the Wittenbergplatz U-Bahn station makes an appearance, and that is actually now a, a uh, heritage site in the city that has somehow survived the last 110 years. This has nothing to do with anything. I'll probably cut it, but I thought that was... No, that's. What, I mean, I always like those moments when you watch silent films and you recognize that you've been mm -hmm. in a space or something in a way. It's like, you know, particularly for me, like, I mean, one of my all-time favorite films is um, Actuality from 1906, A Trip Down Market Street, uh, which was shot like seven days before the San Francisco earthquake in Market Street. Well, now, actually, since the pandemic, they've started to change actually some of the operations of how it works. And it's actually returning once again to a... Uh, a pedestrian friendly street um but you know it's like it's interesting right Le these films are are gateways to see to literally seeing the past and it's always nice to sort of have those moments of recognition it isn't just like that kind of aura thing for me i think it, either it's this idea that this is a testament to this place and this vibe even having survived all this calamity right we think of um especially world war ii in berlin as this apocalyptic event which it was you know the, most of the city was flattened it's, it's very special when you see things survive that yeah, absolutely <laughs> at least the good parts anything else that you'd like to touch upon before we uh sort of wrap things up if you're a lubich fan and i don't mean to say this in a in a condescending way but i assume most people who are lubich fans have mostly seen the sound stuff and haven't necessarily dived into the silent films um or anything from his german period i feel this is a really good gateway film it's only 45 minutes which is short ossi oswalda is such a charismatic movie star to watch and the way that she moves around the screen is absolutely delightful and you know obviously the gender bending stuff is really really cool to see too and i think is not you know it's both something typical of the era and yet still extremely novel in the way that lubitsch appears it so um i really recommend this film to anyone um curious to really diving into a silent era stuff and the materials put out um, by both uh, Eureka in the UK and I want to believe Kino Lorber has put this out in the United States. You can do what we do and get a region free player. It's it's a great film. I'm very happy to have come on and um, I'm sure I'm going to be back later in the series to talk about some other stuff. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I'm glad that you mentioned just the watchability of this film because you know going through a, an uncompromising full run through filmography like this is interesting because I kind of got to watch how I talk about these films. For me, there is inherent value in watching something like Where Is My Treasure? Because to me, it allows the rest of Lubitsch's filmography to reflect on it. And it's also just, for me, inherently interesting on an academic level because it's history. It is an important part of the history of someone I care about. However, I can't really equate the experience of watching the previous three films in this series with this one, because the first three films in this series, especially the first two shorts, are, I think, fascinating, but on an academic level, mm -hmm. <laughs> on a level of, oh, this brings me joy because of what this film says, mostly about other things. If I were to say to someone randomly on the street, uh, hey, uh, what's the movie I watched recently that I would just recommend as a watchable thing? Um, I wouldn't first reach for where is my treasure? This, I wouldn't want to be a man. This represents kind of a turning point in this series where 
this is the first film I would say, yes, I can unreservedly say this is a fully functional work of film entertainment in terms of fulfilling what it wants to do. And that I think is, it's an interesting distinction because it's very easy to overstate that and just to minimize the achievements of something like Shoe Palace Pincus or The Mary Jail, which I think, again, they're movies, they're, they're fully present stories. But uh, this one is remarkable on its own terms, even outside of just this project. So if anyone here is, for whatever reason, listened to all four episodes up to this point and gone, where can I jump in, in terms of just if I want to not have to watch every single film, this is the first one I'd say watch it just watch it it's, it's available uh, it's it's on the eureka lubitsch in Ber berlin set in incredible quality it's in the public domain so you can youtube it it's it's available everywhere like virtually all of his i think all of his berlin films are in public domain now and we're just we're, we're now going through um timeline wise i think student prince i think is just now falling into that's 1927 silent is just now falling into public domain so hopefully by the time this podcast comes out this the series is finished will be at his talkie era for public domain which is an exciting time. So thank you so much for coming, Peter. Happy to do it. Thank you so much, everyone. Next week, Tim Britton joins us to discuss The Eyes of the Mummy Ma. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for the links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 